Welcome to Jabberwocky Audio Theatre. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you. Visit our website at jabberaudio.com support to learn more or go to patreon.com slash team jabberwocky. The following audio theater is rated ADG for general audiences. Hello, this is Bill Coughlin. And this is Bjorn Munson. And welcome to another Jat Chat, where we take a look behind the Jabberwocky Audio Theater curtain. A lot to go through this time. It's been a year since our last Jat Chat. Uh, yeah, as you may imagine, a lot has happened outside of our audio theater plans in the past year. That it has, most definitely. And as listeners may have expected, our plans changed quite a bit. Yes. Uh, personally, 2020 is not going to be one of my favorite years. That might be 83 might be one of them. But <laughs> anyway, I, I'm going on the premise that you all don't want to dwell on that and want to know mainly about Jabberwocky Audio Theater. So we're going to cover some of how the past year has impacted our plans, but we're going to be looking a lot more to the future. Right. So for Jabberwocky Audio Theater, the biggest change has been the longtime closure of the Arlington Independent Media Facilities, mm -hmm. where we usually record our productions and where we broadcast from the radio station, WERALP. Yeah. Now, both Bill and I have our own in-house recording facilities, as we mentioned in our last chat. That lets us create our own content, but, uh, well... Yeah, as much as we do enjoy the sound of our own voices. <laughs> yeah. A, a huge part of Jabberwocky is bringing a team together. So the pandemic helped us figure out how to still do that safely. Uh, in this, it helped that since so many of the people we work with here at Jabberwocky Audio Theater are professional actors, many have their own recording setups at home. We've actually been doing some of this already with our two anthology series, uh, Through the Looking Glass and Through a Glass Darkly. Exactly. And even though those have had a single storyteller uh, and enhanced narration, as I believe uh, Bill has termed it, with plenty of sound effects and music, I've always planned for us to try some additional formats. Which brings us to Prince Prigio. Yes, Prince Prigio. Uh, this was one of my favorite fairy tales growing up. It's written by Andrew Lang, who is probably best known for some of his collections of fairy tales, several of which we've adapted already for Through the Looking Glass. But this is a different kind of fairy tale. Exactly. It's a, it's a more self-aware tale. It's playing with fairy tale tropes. It's kind of like... Princess Bride or Shrek a century before Princess Bride or Shrek. And I'm still hoping to do a quote-unquote full cast audio version of some folktales, but, um, well, A, it, that is more work, uh, and B, in the case of Prince Prigio, the narrator is a bit of a character himself. So the idea was that we would not really cut any of the text, uh, the narrator would narrate up a storm. But everywhere in the text where a character was speaking, we'd use a member from the company. And that added up to a lot of voices. Right, yeah, I think it was over 40. And, and, and we have them. To date, there's about 50 people who've worked on Jet Productions over, uh, wow, uh, not, not too many years. Uh, but then it became a question of who had the right home equipment to record. True, true. And this leads to a, a twofold challenge with audio quality. Mm -hmm. uh, getting broadcast quality audio, since we are going out over broadcast radio, it's not quite as easy as plugging in a computer mic and recording with your system's built-in audio. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, your VHS tape is not going to look great on a modern ultra HD TV. 
uh, not to date ourselves too much, but some of our listeners may not know what a VHS tape is. <sighs> okay. Um, uh, it, it's like trying to take a really cool photo for Instagram uh, with an iPhone 1 instead of an iPhone 12. Uh, Close enough, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but you don't need, well, we didn't need an iPhone 12. No, no, you really don't. There is a range of possible equipment levels. Uh, not everyone needs a full sound booth and top-of-the-line mic, but there are some minimum thresholds. Right, you, you don't necessarily need a sound booth, but you need a way to deal with the echo and reverb of, say, the average room in your home. And you don't need a top-of-the-line mic, but you likely want something better than... A lot of the mics that are marketed for podcasters that you can just plug into your computer. Exactly. Uh, those mics don't always capture a voice's full dynamic range, mm -hmm. which isn't as important for a casual interview show as many podcasts are. But for audio drama, you, the listener, will pick up on that lack of, uh, shall we say, audio depth. Right, e even subconsciously. And, and speaking of that, there's also the matching. Again, for an interview show, you'll be fine hearing the interviewer sound crisp and clear and the guest clearly phoning in through a, a sometimes spotty connection. But audio drama? Mm -mm. No, more often than not, the voices you hear are supposed to be characters in the same room, or, or field, or concert hall. Yeah, and you're hitting on the other quality issue. Uh, mm -hmm. And in this case, when I say quality, I don't mean in the sense of good or bad, just different. Uh, I mean, you think you're recording in a clean environment, but the reverb in your home is just slightly different than someone else's, even if you're not noticing it in isolation. Or one mic sounds flatter or tinnier, and another captures a lot more bass tones. Or one mic's input is set a bit high and you get some clipping. So a lot of work in post uh, to get them to work together. And a lot of times that meant doing things like adding reverb to an otherwise clean recording just so it matches the rest. Because you want to sound like they're in the same room or field or concert hall. Yeah, right. Uh, we ended up working with all of our actors to make sure that they had the best setup they could, did some initial testing, and then, well, <laughs> we worked with what we got. Which, which worked out pretty well, in my opinion. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, honestly, the production was one of the sanity-preserving elements of last year, though we did learn many things that came into play for our next remote recording production, the second season of our hard-boiled crime series, Quorum. Aha! Yes, our original plan had been to record in groups at, at AIM, just like the first season and the Messenger's Tale interlude that we did between them. Uh, we'd already pushed back on the schedule, figuring things would be back to normal at some point before too long. But uh, it became clear after a few months that wasn't going to happen. <sighs> yep. A and we will record together in groups for future productions, but we wanted to figure out a safe way to produce Quorum so we could air it this year. And thanks to Prince Prigia, we knew better about how to ensure the audio quality we needed. Uh, but we also knew that I would want to direct each of the recording sessions so we could best get that sense that all the different characters were interacting with each other, even if they were recorded weeks apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that helped this uh, cast cohesiveness was we did a full cast virtual table read. The whole cast was able to read through all 10 episodes over two days. And this also helped Bill see if there were any further tweaks to be done to the script. And there were. Uh, this proved to be just so useful, not just for me, but because of the chance for everyone to meet, even virtually, uh, get a sense of who they'd be appearing with, feel out those dynamics, and hopefully recapture that later in their individual recordings. Mm -hmm. now, now, some people have asked about 
recording remotely simultaneously. And we did look into that because the advantage is that you get that group dynamic, that in-the-moment interaction, which is exactly why we like to record together in person. <laughs> it, it worked for decades of vintage radio fiction. Ah, but the disadvantage is you lose a lot of quality control. Mm -hmm. uh, first, because not everyone's in a great recording environment or using professional gear like we just talked about. And a lot of times you're at the mercy of internet streaming, though there's a host of companies with online solutions trying to fix that. It, it's a trade-off. I think that setup works for entertainment that's meant to be consumed live or close to live, or with at least an understanding that it was produced under pandemic conditions. Yeah, you, you've probably seen a bunch of YouTube videos using some of those solutions. But of course we want Quorum to sound good now, and two years down the road, we've set a reasonably high bar for ourselves. So, in the end, that meant two things. Uh, one, we'd be recording people individually, then cutting them together in the edit. And two, we'd be introducing a hybrid model, where those who had access to full professional-level recording could be recorded remotely. Well, recording themselves on their end while we were on the line to provide direction, uh, both creative and technical. Right, right, right. And then for others, we'd be bringing them in, again, one at a time, to a refurbished Tulgiewood Studios, where Bjorn spent an inordinate amount of time setting up a safe recording environment. Yeah, I think I still smell lemon in my nose. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I used a lot of guidance from a white paper film and TV uh, industry professionals had put together, as well as talking with other producers who were uh, doing uh, some of these productions during the pandemic. So that meant actors letting us know if anything came up two weeks out from the recording date, uh, temperature checks for everyone, surfaces cleaned and sterilized before and after anyone came in, and some medical quality air purifiers I had seen used in action. And in addition to that, uh, Bjorn and I were masked and distanced at all times. Uh, and Bjorn was in the recording booth most of the time anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the end result was this meant instead of our production schedule was a few weeks, like it, it could be for group sessions, our recording stretched out for months, as my family will happily remind me. It's such a gracious crew, I must <laughs> say that, yeah. So um, anyway, that just leaves, I guess, the whole post-production process, which would be a lot more complicated than before. Uh, we're still working on that and probably will be right up until the last minute. I, I hope not the very last minute. No, let's, let's, give me two minutes. <laughs> I, I'm going to aim for 10. But, okay. uh, but in the meantime, uh, we've covered the production, but let's get back to the story of Quorum. Uh, do you, do you want to give a little recap for anyone who might not yet have listened to the show? Okay, okay, yeah. Um, at its most fundamental level, Quorum is an ongoing series of individual tales. Uh, stories of people whose lives are affected by a mysterious cabal of conspirators known as the Quorum, uh, secretly manipulating global events for their own sinister purposes, which aren't entirely explained yet, though we get little hints each time they appear. And they go by uh, code names after chess pieces. Uh, but for the most part, it's not clear, at least not to the people in these tales, that they're part of a larger plot. Yeah, and as the audience, you can listen to this just as crime adventure tales befalling the gambler, the messenger, and others. Right, right. The involvement of the quorum is known to us, the listeners. Uh, the quorum itself kind of uh, bookends each season, and we get a little peek into how they operate, uh, not to mention their own internal conflicts. But the main characters in each tale have their own story. So while the quorum may be manipulating things on a world scale, our stories themselves are more grounded. We're kind of seeing the Quorum's involvement early on, and I'll clarify that, yes, as the writer, I do know what they're planning. And that will eventually pay off. Yes. Uh, for now, best to think of that as a kind of a side story, a B-plot, if you will. It'll pay off eventually. Anyway, the main story we're telling right now is The Gambler's Tale, and it's a wide-ranging story about a professional poker player, uh, Jimmy Harmon, who 
thanks to some short-sighted decision-making, gets caught up with a Las Vegas character named Victoria Salkovich, a former mobster who's now mostly legitimate. Legitimate and mostly both having some wiggle room. Absolutely. Uh, then events escalate to the point where, in our first season arc, Outstanding Debts, uh, Jimmy gets entangled in a plot involving a bunch of nefarious characters, from Vegas poker pros to rogue federal agents to trigger-happy gunmen. And some not-so-nefarious ones, including a fellow poker pro Peeps and a quirky police detective Ben Marshall. Well, to be fair, the jury's still out on how nefarious some of them might actually turn out to be. And then my favorite, mayhem ensues. That it does. Uh, the whole season is told against the backdrop of the professional poker world in April of 2011. Most significantly, the online poker boom, and notably its complete collapse that month. And a lot of the aftermath of those events. Now, I know that the online poker collapse really did happen in the real world. Uh, to be clear, and I'm, I'm play-acting a bit here for the benefit of the audience, since I already know the answer, is this a historic retelling of those events? No, no it is not. It's definitely a work of fiction. Uh, but I wanted to give it some historical backdrop. As I think I've mentioned, I started writing The Gambler's Tale way back when this was all taking place, uh, to the point where I'd be rewriting as events unfolded. But as things evolved, as the public learned more about what was really going on behind closed doors, it felt like a wasted opportunity not to incorporate some of those events, tell the story with the benefit of historic hindsight. But this is not history. Uh, though if someone finds it interesting, I'd certainly recommend looking into what really happened. In fact, you wrote a series of articles on the historic backdrop that went into the first season, which are available on the blog on our website, jabberaudio.com. Hint, hint. <laughs> right. Uh, I did pieces on the real-world character influences for The Gambler's Tale, uh, the network of drainage tunnels underneath the city, and a three-part series on the rise and fall of online poker all a result of some of the research I did in fleshing out that world. And I'm planning to write something similar for the next chapter in the Quorum story. Ah, which uh, brings us to The Messenger's Tale. Exactly. Uh, as I said, a Quorum is going to tell several different stories, or tales, and The Messenger's Tale takes place a few months after Outstanding Debts. Only instead of taking place against the poker world of Las Vegas, this story is set in D.C. from the point of view of a bicycle messenger trying to deliver a package before a critical deadline. So uh, let's go into what you wanted to tell in this story. Well, mostly I just wanted to tell you the story of a person, uh, in this case Swipe, the messenger in question, uh, who's dealing with a major life change and questioning her identity as a result. Uh, the way the story plays out, that's really the A plot, Swipe's relationship with her fiancé Angela and how she's struggling to give up the job she's seen for so long is key to her self-identity. And then the whole chase across the city aspect sort of uh, puts that struggle into focus. As for the setting, the idea of bike messengers in D.C., that came from my own observations working in design. Uh, we used messengers all the time to send proofs back and forth to clients, printers, and so on. And just out on the streets of the city, you'd see them everywhere. Only not so much nowadays. Uh, just like with online poker, it's an industry that almost completely disappeared. Uh, with poker, it was actually outlawed, but with bike messengers, it's just obsolescence. So again, doing research, I found out just how male-dominated the industry was, and so I wanted to tell the story from a female perspective. Just thought that'd be more interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, then seeing what the industry was like at the time, fall of 2011, uh, definitely on its way out, but there were still a few places that depended on physical delivery, uh, mostly the legal and political spheres. And so The Messenger's Tale is just a single episode story. Again, if you go to the website, you'll see it listed as an interlude between seasons of The Gambler's Tale. Right. 
Uh, the Gambler's Tale plays out over three seasons, uh, but I also wanted to uh, pepper in some smaller stories. Uh, for now, we're doing single-episode tales between regular Quorum seasons. Uh, in fact, I've already written the story that'll take place after Quorum Season 2, or the initial version of it anyway, but more on that later. Okay, so what should we reveal about Season 2? Uh, the subtitle for this season of The Gambler's Tale, this uh, story arc, if you will, is All That Glitters, uh, the meaning of which will become apparent later on in the story, or at least I hope so. Cameron McNary is back as our gambler, uh, Jimmy Harmon, and we pick up his story a little more than a year later, in the summer of 2012. He's still trying to get back on his feet after the events of the first season, but he's now living back in Los Angeles. Sorry, Vegas fans, but he needed to leave town. Yep. We established at the end of season one that leaving town is a good idea, and at least hint he's going to L.A. Uh, he still owes Victoria Salkovich, uh, played by returning cast member Lydia Craniotis, but they've reached an understanding. In fact, she's managed to snag him a seat at a coveted private poker game. And as our story begins, he's about to undergo his, uh, well, his uh, final audition, you might say. Okay. Uh, so uh, let's talk about some of the new characters we meet. Uh, first and foremost, we have the players in that game. So we have a wealthy venture capitalist Anton Kreitzer, played by Pete Papa George, and a movie star Parker Wells, played by Daniel Riley Bush. Uh, two more returning actors from season one, though playing new characters this time around. And uh, he'll also meet grifter and aspiring actor Ken Ford, played by Patrick Kirchner, and mysterious performance driver Eleanor Wallace, played by Ariana Almajan, uh, both newcomers to Jabberwocky Audio Theater. And then he'll also meet a character with whom he technically interacted in season one, though we didn't hear her side of the conversation, uh, Robin Freeman, his ex-girlfriend, played by another newcomer to our troupe, Emily Gilson. Uh, needless to say, their reunion doesn't exactly go smoothly. Mm -hmm. uh, listeners can go back to a certain tense phone conversation in season one to get an idea. True, true. Uh, but there's more to it than just backlash over an old phone argument. Uh, Robin's trying to find Jimmy after what she thinks is a possible attempt on her life. And on top of all that, Jimmy has an ulterior motive in trying to join that elite poker game, one that ties directly back to the events of season one. So, multiple mysteries going on at once, which is pretty much what you expect from season one. Uh, pretty much. Uh, along the way, they'll run up against a crooked police detective named Malone, uh, played by returning JAT performer Ricardo Padilla, meet the usual array of colorful characters, including the organizer of the big poker game, Margaret Florian, played by newcomer Laura Rocklin, and real estate speculator Glenn Chambers, played by Kevin Murray, who actually played a few roles in season one. Oh, and uh, Jimmy also gets help from a shady character we met briefly in season one, uh, Skitch, played by Mike Bernal. Uh, that was a, a really fun one. I needed a character with a particular set of uh, less-than-above-board skills. And as I got into writing, I thought, instead of coming up with a whole new character, why not bring back one we'd heard before, whose world would be likely to cross with Jimmy's? And I don't want to go too far into it yet, but just like the first season, Outstanding Debts takes place against real-world events, All the Glitters also features fictionalized versions of actual history. Uh, so, how deliberate is this for you? Actually, not at all. Uh, I just knew uh, when I started writing about when I wanted it to take place relative to the first season. Uh, but once I got into the prep and the research and so on, I found so much was happening in Los Angeles in and around that summer, from a real-life analog to the elite poker game, to shady real estate deals, to... Well, I don't want to say too much more just yet, but... Even little things. I'd be in the middle of writing, researching what was going on at the time, and I'd find some real-life event that pretty much mirrored what I was trying to convey. It was uncanny. And, of course, there were a slew of fictional influences. We don't have time to go into it all today. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe if we do a post-show chat. <laughs> uh, but uh, this season is influenced by everything from the usual films noir, like Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard, 
or the neo-noirs like Chinatown, LA Confidential, or honestly even Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and even video games like a Grand Theft Auto V, or more accurately its ongoing online version, and uh, L.A. Noir, which so uncannily recreated 1947 Los Angeles street by street. And I absolutely have to mention Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which uh, incidentally I literally just rewatched last night, because damn. <laughs> Could watch that movie at the drop of a hat. Um, but as far as The Gambler's Tale is concerned, it's not just for that film's hard-boiled crime storyline, but for a central conceit that... Uh, you know, actually, I may be saying too much already. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, aside from the overt influences, there are little Easter eggs scattered throughout the show. Uh, but I'll leave those for keen-eyed, or keen-eared listeners to discover. And of course, the city of Los Angeles itself. That's one of the things I tried to do, is ground everything in the character of the city. I actually plotted out the routes of the car chases, tracked down locations, figured out exactly how long it would take to get from point A to point B, and so on. And while I visited LA, I've never actually lived there, so I spent a lot of time researching some of the little details, like, for example, you generally can't just stick your hand up and hail a cab, unlike, say, New York or in DC. So at one point, Jimmy ends up taking the bus. And I should point out to listeners here that Bill is incredibly scrupulous in his research, and that means he will go back and make things right in this fictional world. <laughs> yes, I, uh, I do take my world building seriously. Uh, once I realized that quirk about taxis in LA, I started thinking, hmm, you know, I wonder if you can hail taxis off the street in Las Vegas. And you know what? Nope, you can't. It hadn't even occurred to me at the time when you did season one, uh, my clear East Coast bias creeping in. And I had no fewer than three instances where someone hails a cab off the street. But hey, we're bringing in our cast to record season two, so why not just revisit those scenes, uh, tweak them a bit? And actually, I like the end result better. Uh, it gave a little more character insight, uh, with Jimmy's sense of entitlement showing through when he jumps the line at a cab stand, and Wilmer Crick's brute force mindset coming through when he just runs out into the street and forcibly stops one. A lot more fun than just calling taxi. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Christopher Walker is also back as Crick in season two, even if just for a brief appearance, as are a couple of others. But for the most part, except for Jimmy, it's mostly a new set of characters this time around. Uh, but the upshot is, for any future rebroadcasts or on the podcast feed, you'll find those slightly tweaked scenes have replaced the old ones in season one. So, for you people who watch movies and see them not getting it right, Bill has your back. That is one of the things I try to do, is make things as uh, plausible as possible. I've certainly taken a lot of creative liberties, but I try to do so deliberately. Uh, like I mentioned a minute ago about plotting out all the car chase scenes. Uh, the last thing I want is for an L.A. resident to get pulled out of the story because of some obvious error that I could have fixed. Uh, kind of like how we uh, DC people get irritated when a movie like No Way Out has Kevin Costner board the metro in Georgetown, <sighs> where there is no metro stop, mm -hmm. and then a short ride later, exit again in Georgetown. So wrong. Yeah, so you, you take liberties where the narrative requires it, but don't go out of your way to fudge the details. Right. At every moment, we want listeners to feel like the world of Quorum is a fully realized, internally consistent one. So, speaking of realizing the Quorum world, I believe you have another bit of information you want to share on that front, right? Ah, yes. Uh, I think I've mentioned it here, but one of my favorite current drama podcasts is Within the Wires, uh, written by Jeffrey Craner and Janina Mathewson, part of the Night Vale Presents Network. I don't want to spoil anything, so I'll just recommend everyone give it a listen. Uh, the central conceit of the show is that it's made up of pieces of found audio. So the first season consists of a series of relaxation tapes, the second season is museum audio tour tapes, the third season is dictation recordings, and so on. 
and through those recordings, which start out innocuous enough, you gradually get a sense of the wider story of the frankly ominous world in which they take place. Yeah, I, I know we've talked about it before. Right. Yeah. And they also have a series called Black Box, which is only available to their Patreon supporters. And that gave me an idea. What if we created a series of found audio recordings that take place in the world of Quorum? Go on, you have my attention. I thought I might. Uh, we're always looking for ways to provide additional bonus material for our Patreon backers, and this seemed like a good candidate. So it's called the Quorum Archives, and each episode is designed to follow on from one of the show's regular seasons. We're still finishing up recording on those, but at the moment we have an episode called The Authorities uh, that follows The Gambler's Tale, Outstanding Debts. Uh, the second, called The Candidates, follows The Messenger's Tale. And then we've got a third, uh, the title of which I'll keep under wraps until after All That Glitters finishes airing. Uh, but these were a lot of fun to write, a very different creative exercise from writing the main scripts for the show, and I really hope you'll have as much fun listening as I did writing them. And those are exclusive to Patreon backers. Right. Uh, these won't be broadcast on WERA and won't be made available with the regular podcast feed. Uh, now, to be clear, none of these are providing essential story information. Uh, speaking just for myself, I tend to hate it when a TV show or movie holds back vital story information for one of their spin-off properties. You know, like, I don't know, when the latest Star Wars movie stuck their whole return of Palpatine moment, not in the movie itself, but in the Fortnite game. <laughs> <laughs> right, yes. Uh, uh, so we are most definitely not doing that here. These are supplemental to the main story. Uh, that said, I do think they'll provide some insight into the larger world surrounding our tales. So, Bjorn, how can people find out about supporting us on Patreon? Well, that is patreon.com slash teamjabberwocky. That's also where you find all kinds of extra bonus materials for all of our shows, like expanded entries on the Encyclopedia of the Imperium for Rogue Tiger, or audio versions of those articles Bill wrote about the real-world background of Quorum, and, and a whole lot more. And most importantly, you're helping us be able to keep bringing you new tales from the worlds of Quorum and Rogue Tiger, not to mention all of our other series like Through the Looking Glass, Through Glass Darkly, and hopefully some more series we have in the works, like the dark sci-fi tale, A Whisper in the Void. Mm-hmm. And honestly, every little bit helps us keep the lights on here at Jabberwocky Audio Theater. Providing these kinds of bonus content is just our way of showing you how much we appreciate you, our listeners, who go that extra step to support us. So, uh, with that little insight into the wider quorum world, uh, I think we're about at time. Yes, I think for both of us, once we get going, it's hard to stop. <laughs> yeah, but eventually stop we must. So, let me just say that for those of you listening on WERA, we're going to be rebroadcasting the first season of The Gambler's Tale starting next week, followed by The Messenger's Tale. Followed by an all-new recap episode, which will also be showing up on the podcast feed, uh, covering the events of both those series, just to set the stage for what's to follow. Which is, of course, Quorum, the Gambler's Tale, All That Glitters. And we honestly can't wait to share it all with you. So with that, this is Bjorn Munson. And this is Bill Coughlin. Stay tuned, stay safe, and get ready to plunge headlong into the world of Quorum. Adventure awaits. Jabberwock.